Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more stories, more flavor, less time, less ukulele. In this episode, thiols are all the rage. In fact, Denny and I have been talking about it a couple times on the main show. Drinkers are craving those big hoppy punches of guava, passion fruit, mango, etc., etc. The price for thiol-rich hops can really make a brewer cry. But what if you could get a little help from brewer's best friend, yeast? I'm sitting down with Nick Harris of Berkeley Yeast to talk about their genetically engineered thiol-boosting Tropics Yeast series. But first, a message from our sponsors. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. The Seltzer Sensation is here, and our friends at Mangrove Jacks have specifically formulated their newest craft series yeast for making home-brewed hard seltzer. The Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer yeast and nutrient produces a clean, neutral flavor and aroma profile, allowing you to get creative with your hard seltzer recipe. Homebrewers can use this blend of yeast and nutrient in their own seltzer recipes, or choose from one of the new Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer recipe kits, which are formulated to make up to five gallons of refreshing 4.5% seltzer. The kits come in three thirst-quenching varieties, Raspberry Breeze, Lemon and Lime Smash, and Pineapple Sunset. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you so much for listening to those ads. Remember, if you interact with any of our sponsors, tell them that you heard about them here on The Brew Files. Now, as I said in the intro, thiols are all the rage. We've been talking to hop suppliers. We've been talking about survivables. We've been talking about, well, we talked about terpenes in the past, but that's not the topic for today. But now there's also a new trend to actually help boost thiol characters in your beer via yeast, I've told you a little bit about that, but of course, I'm just a dummy who reads the news. Why don't we actually dig into it? And so I got somebody here online to help me. Introduce yourself, sir. Hey, Drew. Thanks for having me. This is Nick from Berkeley Yeast. Yeah, excited to talk about thiols today. Let's get the background on Berkeley Yeast because I think a lot of listeners haven't either aren't aware of Berkeley existing or haven't had a chance to interact, or they may see it pop up on a can of, home, uh, can of brew that they, they go and buy. So tell me a little bit about Berkeley. Yeah, so we, we've been in existence now for almost five years. We started off as, as just four, um, four co-founders. Three of us uh, received our PhDs from UC Berkeley. We were studying metabolic engineering, so 
basically getting organisms to produce different chemicals. In the case of two of our co-founders, they were investigating having yeast produce terpenes. So it sounds like you've talked about that on the show. The very first strain that kind of kicked us off as a company uh, was a strain that produces the three primary determinants of Cascade hops. Uh, So that's linalool, geraniol, and citronellol, three terpene alcohols. From there, we really expanded our, our scope. And so we've been developing strains to either streamline production processes, like we have a quick souring strain that produces lactic acid, in, additional, in addition to, to alcohol during primary fermentation, so you don't need to do a kettle souring process. We have strains that get rid of diacetyl, so you don't have to have a diacetyl rest or do VDK tests. And then most recently, we've been kind of messing around with these thiol-releasing yeast strains. So these are ultra-biotransformative strains that are releasing massive amounts of tropical-tasting thiols. And just to give people some background, so when I went to college and I had a bunch of friends who were biochemical engineers, they were doing all that study. Even back then, I mean, there was a there was a lot more use of yeast to produce other compounds than I think most brewers would ever be aware of because we just kind of think, oh, you know, yeast, you go and you make bread and beer with it. But turns out it's been used for years to be in the middle of a bioreactor and generate something useful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeast, yeast is used for all sorts of things. Um, it's, it's a useful model organism for studying different biological processes. So e- even beyond just producing chemicals, you know, yeast is a very easy, simple system. When I say simple system, I just mean it's a very pliable organism that's easy to study. So it's easy to manipulate and it's easy to tease out different traits. So you can change the way that a gene is working or you can plug in new genes, for instance, and test the effect of, of that engineering to see what um, test different outcomes. It's used in the lab um, as a model organism um, for studying even cancer, but it's also used in the realms of biochemical engineering to produce a wide variety of compounds that range from painkillers to THC, different types of uh, CBDs, and you just heard about terpenes. There's a wide variety of compounds that you can get yeast to produce. One thing that I think is really cool is just how fluid life is. So we're all made out of the same stuff. All uh, organisms, including microorganisms like yeast, use genes to encode enzymes that carry out chemical work. And so you can take genes from different organisms and insert them into a yeast chromosome, and that will confer the yeast the ability to uh, transcribe and translate those those uh, genes into enzymes that then produce whatever ta- target molecules you're going after. And so that's what we do at Berkeley Yeast is that we're actually genetically engineering the yeast to carry out very specific activities. So in the case of producing thiols, you know, we've, we've introduced a new gene into the yeast uh, chromosomes that allows it the ability to release tropical tasting thiols during fermentation. Let's actually cover one uh, quick question I'd had. Because when you go and you look, and we had talked pre the show about the fact that there are a couple of yeast strains that are doing this now. We see some of the people talking about, oh, this is a hybridized yeast. And then we see other people talking about genetic modification or genetic engineering. Real simple. Explain it to me like I'm five. What's the difference between hybridization and genetic engineering? I'm not an expert in hybridization, but my understanding is that's crossing two different yeast strains 
in the case of escarpment labs, I believe they crossed a Kvike strain with some other strain. And what they're hoping is that one of those strains may have a more active gene or more active, perhaps uh, the enzyme that's encoded by that gene could be more active. And so they're hoping that that more active version of the gene is transferred into the other yeast strain. And now that yeast will, will have that gene and will be able to have that activity. When you're doing hybridization, you can't just transfer over a single gene. You're actually transferring over a lot of genetic material all at once. And so you may also provide the new yeast strain with multiple traits. Some of those may not be desirable. And so you end up screening for a lot of, you know, trying a lot of different strains. With genetic engineering, it's basically like a pair of scissors that you're cutting at a very specific point in a genome and inserting a very specific gene. So you're able to transfer a single trait uh, very precisely without affecting any other traits. And so it's just a very precise and fast way of causing a change. What's also cool is that you're not limited to the yeast world. You can pull genes from anywhere in nature. So in the case of terpenes, for instance, the genes that we insert into the yeast come from basil and mint because yeast don't normally produce terpenes. We can pull from from the entire natural world. And then there are also a lot of other tools that are available to genetic engineers that aren't available for hybridization, which includes a suite of basically dimmer switches called promoters that allow you to tune gene expression. So whenever we start on a new project and we're trying to create a yeast strain that produces some sort of class of molecule, we'll try different versions of the same type of gene because each of those genes will encode a a slightly different enzyme, which may have different uh, levels of activity. And then we'll also insert a different sequence called the promoter, which controls the extent to which that gene is turned on. And so the more a gene is turned on, the more of the enzyme that's encoded will be made and more of the final molecule that will be made. And so if you want to increase or decrease the concentration of whatever target molecule, say it's like a pineapple flavor molecule that you're trying to make, you can swap in and out different promoters that that are kind of at different points on this dimmer switch so that you can control the concentration of pineapple flavor that that will be present. And so when we make a new yeast, we typically will try out different versions of the gene, different promoters, and we may make 100 to 1,000 different uh, variants that each are producing a different amount of the final molecule. You just have more control with genetic engineering. There have been a lot of genetic uh, changes that have occurred over the past couple thousands of years, ever since uh, people started brewing beer. But this just enables... It enables very fast and precise changes. So that, that's kind of the difference. Well, and so to your point, like with hybridization, you'd have possibly a lot of knock-on side effects, you know, other things that are being carried across. So you, even when you're doing the genetic engineering, you're talking running a couple hundred tests. You know, with hybridization, you may be running a couple thousand tests and may never get to the point where you want to be. Yeah, that, that's that's absolutely right. And I think in the case of, of releasing thiols, you know, there are, there are really no naturally occurring yeast strains that have really high activity for releasing thiols. And so if you're only dipping into the pool of what's available in the yeast world, you're, it's really limiting to, 
to basically how much activity the final yeast strain can have. So you're starting off at a point that's that's just not as rich as, say, like if you were to get a gene from guava, for instance, guava is full of thiols. And so the, the enzyme that's being encoded by the guava may be more active than what's available in the yeast world. And so if you use genetic engineering and took a gene from that guava and inserted it into the yeast, that's, that's not what we did for tropics. But it, say if you were to do that, you may be able to provide the yeast uh, the ability to release more thiols than they could had you grabbed that gene from just the yeast world. And so speaking of the yeast, because I, I know like one of the ones that you had is a, like a version of Sactois that doesn't have the diastaticus expression, the SDA1. Right. Now we're talking about Tropic, which is the one I think I actually put you guys on my radar because I just had Hen House during one of my uh, happy hours. Hen House is up in, uh, was that in Santa Rosa, California, up in the Sonoma Valley. And fantastic brewery. And they sent me a can of their Science Reasons IPA, which is this sort of thiol boosted hazy IPA that uses the Tropic from y'all. Now, I just have to say, when I open that can, like even holding it at arm's length, tropical fruit just came screaming out of me. Yeah. And what I thought was really interesting about it was when I've had a lot of sort of beers that people are trying to push a lot of hop uh, hop thiols naturally, you know, like, hey, we're going to use this whole bunch of mosaic and galaxy and other things that are going to have a lot of thiols in them. I almost always end up getting a beer that ends up tasting semi-rotten, like the, the the fruit is on the verge of going off. Sure. And with the expression that I got out of that science reasons, it was more fresh, clean, potent, popping fruit. Yeah. And it, and it smelled like I had just picked this thing up in the, in the produce islands, perfectly ripe. Yeah. And I thought that was really, really interesting. I do have to ask, you know, because I, I find the idea of using yeast as, you know, sort of boosting hop characters in a way. Kind of interesting. I mean, did you guys, one, how'd you go from Berkeley to deciding that you're going to make engineered yeast? And then how'd you said, you know, thiol sound like a good place to play. Well, well, first, just back to your Hen House comment. I mean, number one, Hen House is an incredible brewery. Um, so I think that they're especially good at, at teasing these styles out and, and utilizing the yeast in the best possible way. So I know that they, they have a lot of really smart people on their team and, and they're just incredible brewers. So um, it doesn't surprise me that that beer wowed you. So originally, the the reason that we got, got into creating yeast strains for the brewing industry in the first place is that we're all really passionate about beer. I personally have, have been home brewing for, geez, I don't know, 14 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked at a brewery for a little bit, and then the other co-founders were, were into home brewing as well. And um, two of the co-founders were, were home brewing and realized that they, they were simultaneously working on projects for producing terpenes for fuels and realized that a lot of those terpenes looked a lot like the same terpenes that are found in beer. And so that's kind of what initiated the, or that was kind of like the aha moment for, you know, you could probably engineer yeast to, to produce relevant molecules for the brewing industry. But then the, the decision to go after producing thiols, that really happened by just looking at what distinguishes a really good IPA from a mediocre IPA, especially for like new school IPAs. 
And I think what you'll find is that if you take a step back, like the bigger picture is they're full of tropical flavors. And where can you get tropical flavors from? Well, there are not that many places. You know, some terpenes are somewhat tropical. There are some terpenes that taste like grapefruit, for instance, like nutcatone. But then there's there are lactones, which might provide kind of like coconut or peach flavors. But then it's really the thiols that are able to confer more like guava, passion fruit, those type of flavors. There, there are also esters that you know can contribute pineapple and mango flavors. But if you look at all the hops that people have been really excited about recently, it's Mosaic and Nelson and Strata and Galaxy and Rewaka. There, there are a whole bunch of new ones too. But what really distinguishes those hops from the sea hops, for instance, are the thiols that they have. You know, it's, it's, it's how tropical those, those hops are. And so we realized that we could probably get yeast to be a whole lot better at releasing these styles during fermentation. So when you smell those really, those nice new school hops, those hops already have a lot of free thiols, like they're freely available, freely available for you to taste and, and, and smell. But all hops and barley have a lot of thiol precursors that you never get to taste. These are precursor molecules. They're, they're the thiols that are conjugated to different amino acids, and they're just stuck in solution. So they don't taste like anything. You don't smell anything. But a lot of the ingredients that are already used in the brewing process are chock full of these precursors, but they're just untapped because, again, most yeast in the natural world don't have the ability to release them. And that's what they call bound thiols? Those are bound thiols, yeah. So the, the primary forms of bound thiols are, people will say, like, glutathionylated or cystinylated thiols. So GLUT3MH or CIS3MH are the two that get the most, you hear about the most. And uh, there, there's a lot of GLUT and CIS3MH, specifically the GLUT form, the glutathionylated form, in both barley and hops. But you need an active, an active enzyme called a carbon sulfur lyase that will be able to break a carbon sulfur bond and release these thiols. By the way, thiol just means sulfur-containing compound. Specifically, the sulfur is is coming uh, is bound to uh, a hydrogen atom. So it basically looks, chemically speaking, like an alcohol, but instead of the oxygen being there, it's a sulfur. I don't know if anybody listening to this is into chemistry, but that's what a thiol is. So they're sulfur-containing molecules and thiols. Uh, what's cool about them is that you can smell them at very low concentrations. So parts per trillion, which is nanograms per liter. Um, some thiols smell awful. Some smell great. In the case of tropics, it only releases the good smelling thiols, specifically the tropical tasting ones. And so just to get back really fast, the reason we went after engineering yeast to release thiols is because we realized that there was a lot of bound thiol and ingredients that are common to brewers, and they weren't being released. And we, we realized that with genetic engineering, we could tap into this these locked-up thiols and release them to create beer that would be 10 to 100 times more tropical tasting so that, as you were saying, you can open a beer and with your arm out stretched out, you can still smell all the tropical fruit. So that's what we were going after. 
I think one of the things that's interesting is you had talked about some of the other hop constituents that, that we've come to love and use, like linalool. The thing I keep trying to wrap my head around with with thiols, and I think makes it a little bit harder, is the fact like there are no pleasant little names associated with the thiols. It's all things like 4MMP and 3MH yeah. and 3MHA, and, and it's just kind of funny. It's like, going, we need to get some better names slapped on those puppies. Yeah, yeah, some better branding for the thiols. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're not very sexy names right now. Three mercaptohexanol. That's that's three three mh. Um, it's not very catchy. It's hard to remember. Yeah, you know, I mean, come on, that just rolls right off the tongue. Yeah, it does for me. Well, yeah, you <laughs> you have reasons for it too. I, you know, I'm I'm a computer guy. Let's talk CPUs. I'll I'll, I'll feel comfortable right. there. You talked about the fact, like, okay, so we have a lot of these bound up in in the malt and in hops that aren't particularly available to us. You know, we can't sense them. And you'd mentioned the the enzyme that can free them. Now, outside of yeast, is there, I mean, there's n- there's no other brewing process that would in- introduce that sort of enzyme, right? Not that I'm aware of. There are products out there where where there's purified carbon sulfur lyase that you can add into a fermenter, mm-hmm. but a- adding an an enzyme exogenously or, or adding it, you know, outside of a cell, it's it's difficult in the brewing world because. Number one, all enzymes have short shelf lives, yep. so even if you keep them cold. Uh, they'll they'll degrade. Two is that the pH of wort is very low, so typically you knock out around a pH of five to five. You know, let's just say upper end five point five, mm-hmm. and then during fermentation, beer is typically finishing some somewhere in the fours to to the threes even. And most enzymes don't operate very well at at that pH, and so adding an enzyme into the fermenter is just a it's a really good environment for the enzyme to degrade and lose activity quickly. And so you would have to have the precursors in contact with the enzyme for long enough inside of the fermenter for them to actually uh, release those thiols. So from what I understand, that's not the best strategy. You see the same thing with ALDC additions for controlling diacetyl. It's extremely tricky to to time ALDC additions. Um, When you have yeast uh, produce an enzyme, Inside of the yeast cell, the pH is closer to 6.8. So the the enzymes that are produced are, tend to be much more active. They're also produced constantly. So they're replenished. So you constantly have fresh enzyme being produced. Whereas if it was just a single addition, the enzyme's degrading and it's not replenished. Unless you have somebody sitting up there constantly adding it or slowly dripped into the fermenter with the pump. It's important to remind people basic science 101 enzymes effectively only act on certain substrates. Yep. So it's not like, you know, when these co- this compound is released into the beer, it's doing other downstream effects. Right. Yeah, it it it's got it's got its one lock that it can fit into and it does its job. Yeah. That's a great that's a great point and and I think that also just just to touch on safety for a quick second with genetic engineering, uh it's not all willy-nilly. Uh you know, these the genes that are being inserted encode a single enzyme. And as you just said, those enzymes will carry out very specific chemical reactions. And so there's not any guesswork involved. It's it's very easy to know the outcome. It's easy to predict the outcome, that is. So it's, it's easy to know ex- the exact effect in terms of which chemicals are going to be produced. And then there's also a lot of analytical equipment that we have in-house to be able to test for off-target effects just in case. There is some change being made that that wasn't intended, but 
it's it's not likely because of what you were just talking about with you know biology 101 and just how the specificity of enzymes well and i think it's also important to point out that unlike say working with a much higher you know, higher, more complicated organism. So like, I know like GMOs gets a lot of bad raps because people look at like things like, Oh, look, we made corn that can resist uh roundup Yeah. with yeast. Again, to your point, it's such a well-studied and relatively simple organism that these changes can be really well targeted. And you're, you're really sure of what the, what the impact is going to be without some sort of cascading change that could possibly happen. Yeah, I, I think a lot of the pushback from GMOs has historically come from just bad business practices. So creating new new strains of, of corn that are Roundup ready to, to be able to sell more herbicide, you know, that's that's in the best interest of those companies. Whereas, you know, we're trying to create products that are useful for brewers. I don't think anybody has a tough time with yeast is making a more tropical beer or keeping diacetyl out of their beer. I, th- I think in the case of, of the other large corporations that are suing farmers and those type of practices, I, I think have really put in a, a bad taste in people's mouths in terms of GMOs. But I think that you can use the technology for good. You can use it for bad. And, and I think in the case of engineering yeast, this is a great example of, of a solution or of a, it's, a, it's a great use of a technology um, in terms of providing a useful service to, to brewers and to beer consumers. Reminds me of my uh, science ethics class that I had to take uh, before I graduated, where one of the key mantras was, it is rare for a technology itself to be bad. It's the use. Yeah, yeah. So we've got all these styles in, in barley. We've got all these styles and hops uh, all bound up. Is there a way that we know, like, hey, you know, for instance, that that barley has more of these bound thiols? And if I used it in conjunction with a yeast like Tropics, that I would get a, a bigger screaming effect. Yeah, the great question. Currently in the literature, there's not very much information about uh, thiol potential. When I say thiol potential, I mean how much precursor is in different substrates like barleys or, or different hop cultivars. We're currently working uh, in collaboration with uh, a couple of our friends, uh, J.C. Hill at Alvarado Street, Tim Skacia at a cellar maker, and Scott Janish, and we're we're collecting a large variety of different types of barley, as well as a large variety of of hop cultivars and other products like Phantasm and different fruits, basically anything that's uh, that somebody might want to put in a beer, and we're analyzing for different precursors, and so we're hoping to build a resource for for brewers where they can understand what the thiol potential is from different sources. And then we're also doing experiments to figure out the best way to utilize these substrates. So for instance, is it best to add hops into the mash, the kettle, the whirlpool, or different time points during dry hopping? And then we're also looking at stability of these precursors. So do you lose a lot during the boil, for instance? Our, our plan right now, just because the, the literature is, is scant, is, is to build a resource. And um, I think we'll have some preliminary data within the next two weeks. We're, we're trying to get some preliminary results ready for California Craft Brewers Association. Uh, we were doing a presentation. JC Hill and I are doing a presentation start of April. And then by CBC this year, we're trying to have a little bit more information out there. I forgot to mention as well that 
we're also going to be looking at different drought tolerant and disease resilient hop cultivars and, and barley cultivars as well. Because I, I, I believe, and I don't just, I don't have a lot of evidence to back this up, but I believe that that even hops that don't smell very tropical have probably the same amount of thiol potential if if you use a highly biotransformative yeast strain in a fermentation. I do think it's important because one of the things that, I guess one of the things that people are excited about with the idea of being able to use yeast to free up bound thiols is to make it possible to use, say, less expensive, more widely available hops that can then, you know, express some of these big flavors that said, hey, you know, people are going for a lot of mosaic and galaxy hops that are very expressive, but also very expensive and have sort of limited inventory sometimes. I think one of the hopes is that people can go around and look just like with, you'd mentioned talking with Scott and Scott and I have talked a lot about this stuff. Scott working on the survivables thing and turns out like Brewer's Gold, a hop that basically nobody uses anymore, turns out to be extraordinarily high in survivable compounds. Wouldn't that be great? Because you can get Brewer's Gold for much less money than you could, than you'd have to spend on, say, like Galaxy. Yeah, yeah. De- there's definitely money money savings, but then also making just a more sustainable beer. If you can use hops and, and barley uh, cultivars that are more in- environmentally robust, then I think that that could could really help. Because right now, the the hop industry, for instance, is at the whim of of climate change. If there's a bad growing season you see hop yield suffer or this year you know we, we have barley shortages and wheat and wheat yeah so i think that if if we planted different cultivars that were a little bit more robust could could still thrive in, in drought years or could still thrive in um in years where the temperature increases and still get a lot of this tropical thyle out then i think that's what people will start to plant could mean that we're able to drink beer far into the future, uh, drink good beer. And I think that it may turn out that as the climate continues to change, that it's difficult to grow and have large harvests of a lot of different hops that have been selected for their flavor properties. And this is why good engineering is going to be one of our key uh, tools for humanity's future. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We have this yeast that can help free up bound thiols. I mean, is it just a matter of, hey, pitch it and whatever precursors are in your kettle or, or in your fermenter, including whatever you had, maybe like in dry hops and primary, the enzyme will act there, take care of, uh, take care of any of those compounds, free those up. And then on you go, just treating the beer like it's a, a regular beer production, right? Yeah. So just brew the beer as you normally do. No, no mash hopping is required. I know that that's gotten some. You know, some interest recently, but the reason for mash hopping is is to convert some of the GLUT3MH into CIS3MH, but Tropics can can use both substrates. We've done studies where we've added purified GLUT3MH into the fermenter, and we see a big boost in thiols. And so no changes to your process, just brew the beer as you normally do, and you'll see that Tropics, Tropics is expressing one of the most active carbon sulfur lyases known to nature. So even before you add in any dry hops at all, you'll see big guava passion fruit coming off the fermenter. Um, It's pretty incredible. And then dry hop, 
you know, you can dry hop at different time points, depending on what you're going for. If you want to harvest the yeast, I'd recommend harvesting the yeast first mm-hmm. and then dry hopping. But if you want more biotransformation earlier on in the process is, is likely better. We, again, we've done studies where we've added in thiol precursors early on in fermentation and later on in fermentation and adding early results in the largest boost in thiols. Yeah, but this this is just normal yeast. You know, right now we have a few different versions. We have uh, a strain that's based off of London, kind of the most popular London strain out there. That's our flagship tropic strain. We also have a Vermont Conan strain. We have a lager. We have a Kvike strain, a Hornendal-based one. And we're about to release a Chico version as well, or California L yeast. Would I be correct in assuming, okay, so let's say I go and I get my beer off the yeast, right? And so on the professional level, that's, you know, dumping the cone. Homebrew level, that would be racking over. Although important to, to note, Tropics is not available at the homebrew level. We, we, we do sell one-barrel pitches. Um, so if, you know, if, if people reach out to us and want a one-barrel pitch, they, that can be split between your friends even. So I think a one-barrel pitch, one-barrel 12 plato pitch is like 135 bucks. So get five friends together and it, you know, makes it doable, but... Um, yeah, we don't sell homebrew packets. But still, this is useful for people to know as you're seeing these. Because, again, I've been seeing this as something trumpeted in on the cans and whatnot. It's like, oh, hey, you know, this is using Tropics. Yep. So I get my beer off the yeast. I'm assuming there's still a, a limited amount of enzyme that's available even after the yeast is gone. There's There may be a little bit. I don't think it's enough to have a real impact. You know, and, and the enzyme is also being produced inside of the yeast cell. So the thiol precursors at the moment need to be transported inside of the cell. We've also tried secreting the enzyme, but it just doesn't work quite as well because, again, I think you're running into a pH issue. And we've added in thiol precursors with one Plato remaining in fermentation, and we don't see that big of an increase. So I think that the best strategy is to try to produce as much thiol as possible early on in fermentation, even though I know that you're also dealing with CO2 evolution and it's a slight battle of, of losing some of these volatiles. But yeah, I think that that's when the yeast is most active and most likely to convert precursors. See, and that's interesting since the yeast does really have to be present because it's not getting secreted. That means you could also even play like some intentional recipe design games to try and express both the thiol boosted and the non-thiol boosted uh, expression of a particular hop, for instance. Yeah, so I would probably, like, if you're going to rack, you know, rack the beer off the yeast, and then you want to still increase thiols, I would then add a, a hop cultivar that already has a lot of free thiol. So, like, Nelson, something like that. You know, Nelson, I, I believe that probably most of the, the thiols that are in existence are already converted into free thiols, and so you'll still get a big a big dose of thiols added to the beer if you, if you dry hop with that without yeast there. Yeah, save your expensive hops for later on in the process. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Of course, me being me and me being an, an old school West Coast guy, everybody talks a lot about these thiol compounds very much in conjunction with the hazy, the New England, the new IPA, right? If I'm looking at this from a West Coast point of view, and particularly since you had just mentioned that you're doing it, you're coming out with a Chico uh, modified version. Would a thiols buy me in a in a classical West Coast? I think that in a classical West Coast, I mean, it depends on what you're going for. You know, if if you want like dank herbal, piney flavors, you might not want to use 
uh, ultra biotransformative yeast strain, I'd probably just stick with normal Chico. And, uh, but if, if, if you're trying to push tropical, tropical aromas, you know, like, um, there are a lot of good examples these days where people are, are pushing tropical aromas and West coast IPAs and they're delicious. Um, El Segundo, for instance, is doing a lot of great beers down South. Um, oh yeah. El, El Segundo is whenever people come to LA and they want to have a good IPA, I'm instantly point them at El Segundo. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're producing extremely tropical beers that aren't hazy. Yeah, you can either add different hops, but I, I think that they can play very well. I think thiols do play very well with other tropical tasting hops, but I think that you might find that there's a little bit of a clash with tropical if you're also combining with, you know, old school hops, like just straight, I don't know, we'll, I was going to say Centennial, but Centennial these days is, is super tropical too, but, you know, like Chinook, for instance. So, uh, Chinook's hard to pair against a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, so... I think if you're trying to make, you know, an old school West Coast IPA, especially one with a little bit more crystal, um, you know, maybe that's not the best utilization for mm-hmm. trying to boost styles. But I personally love a clear beer that's super tropical. So I think there's definitely, it's a case by case basis, but I think there are definitely some good, there's, there's some good ways that you can use tropics in a, in a clear beer. This actually goes back to a conversation that Denny and I had a couple of episodes ago about the nature of the West Coast IPA and the evolution yeah. of it and talking about how, you know, we, oh, we went through the, yeah, the, the years when it was a lot of crystal, you know, so something more like a Sierra Nevada torpedo. Yep. And then you got the San Diego variants that started to rise up where it was like, we askew all malt that is not Pilsner or pale. Yeah. Uh, and all the, all the bitterness. And now we're getting into this world where, yeah, I'm seeing this sort of rise of what I referred to as the new West Coast IPA. Yeah. And one of the ones I had in mind was El Segundo's Clear AF. Just just to be clear, those El Segundo, um, those clear beers do not have tropics in them, but um, they're, they're pushing tropical flavors in a different way. Anything else that uh, people should know about how to do thiol boosting? You know, again, assuming they could get like a, a a one barrel pitch from you guys and, and split it out amongst friends or just have a really aggressive brew day. Um, <laughs> yeah. Planning a big party. There's your strain. There's Omega's uh, cosmic punch. Uh, yeah. And there's the thiol Libre from escarpment, all of them doing slightly different things. And obviously they'll, you'd have to play around with them to figure out how to m- maximize and utilize for that particular strain. Yeah. Any other sort of general ideas that people should follow and think about if they're going to use one of those strains to really sort of reach for the stars? Yeah. I I think that if you're using tropics, I I can't speak to the other two yeast strains, um, but if you're using tropics, I think the coolest thing to do is probably to just plug it into an existing recipe that you're already familiar with and then swap in tropics and and see what it does because in normal brewing conditions it's still incredible you know you don't need to modify the process at all it's just going to give your beer a huge tropical boost so we've actually seen tropics you know it's now being used as people's house strain who are trying to push more tropical fruit character in their beers you know they're not changing the process if you really want to go nuts with producing thiols um, I would stick with lower kilned barley. I try experimenting with different hops that may have high precursors, but again, in the literature, that information's minimal. So keep keep your eye out for the resource guide that we're putting together. Just it looks right now preliminarily if you're looking at the literature that Cascade, Saws, 
Matueka, Calypso, those hops may have a lot of precursors. I'd probably recommend messing around with adding those to the Whirlpool for hot water extraction. Again, I wouldn't recommend mash hopping with Tropics. Perhaps with other yeast strains, you may require it. And then, yeah, there are other thiol precursor products available. So there's Phantasm, which is uh, grape skin from New Zealand. Yeah, Sauvignon Blanc grape skin. Yep. Still not available at the homebrew level, but from what I've heard uh, from the Newswire is that it will be coming down to the homebrew level sometime shortly. Awesome. Yeah. And um, we're also developing a thiol precursor product, which is purified thiol precursors. So it's a, it's a liquid product, a clear liquid that's added to the fermenter. That's not available yet, but it is coming down the pipeline. Yeah. I don't, I, there are not too many methods for increasing thiols that, that we're, you know, currently aware of. But I think that's the cool thing about tropics is that you don't really have to do much thinking to produce a really tropical tasting beer. Yeah. And, you know, I would be, I mean, the beer nerd part of my head wants to do a, a split batch experiment where I have, you know, the exact same wort and the exact same boil process, you know, and just channel it off into two fermenters, give like, you know, take tropics, you know, one of the variants and then add the non thialized version of it as well, you know, and like run, run them both and be able to tell side by side, exact same glass or exact same batch. Oh yeah. Okay. And then the, other part of me now wants to understand what file uh, free filed cascade tastes like and smells like. Yeah. Well, you could do the batch with, with cascade in the whirlpool and um, yeah, I'd be happy to send you some yeast if you want to do that experiment. I, I would love it. Do a split batch. We'll send you some London and we'll send you our London tropics. Well, Nick, I mean, like I said, I'm fascinated by this. It's you know, better living through biochemistry, right? <laughs> I'm I'm fascinated. I can't wait to see where this goes. And as I've started talking about more and more about hops, and particularly when we started talking about survivables a couple of years back, it was like, man, don't you remember when hops used to be easy? And now it's suddenly become a lot more versatile, but also now a lot more complicated. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. It's definitely um, there's a whole world um, expanding in front of us, and yeah, there are a lot more tools out there and. You know, I think it's helping people brew better beer. So it's definitely a very exciting time to be living in. All right. Well, thank you. And folks, you can go to find out more information about Tropics and Berkeley. The website's berkeleyyeast.com, just like you would expect to be able to sell it, uh, spell it. Yeah, just pack as many E's in there as you can. And that's how you spell Berkeley. <laughs> there we go. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and to our audience. And again, now you guys will know if you see a can that's out there and it says, hey, you know, made with Tropics what's exactly going on here and hopefully this also helps settle some people's possible concerns about genetic engineering in yeast because boys we've been doing this for a long time thanks for having me drew had a great time thank you everyone for joining us on another episode of the brew files we hope that you enjoyed this look at genetically engineered yeast and more importantly to the developing world of quantifying bound thiol quantities that's a mouthful what do you think is a specialized yeast with new gene expressions a bridge too far? Is hop chemistry getting too weird? Or are you finding all of this a great and grand, glorious surprise and playground to play in? And by the way, who wants to split a pitch of some tropic yeast with me? Now remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. 
You can reach us at Denny at ExperimentalBrew.com or Drew at ExperimentalBrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, click the AHA, Amazon, or BOI links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is K9 for Warriors, helping connect veterans and other people in need of help with rescue dogs who can help them out too. Now, until next time, remember, the brew is out there. And we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Want to get discounts on homebrew supplies and save money at craft breweries? Join the American Homebrewers Association and save at more than 2,300 AHA member deal locations worldwide and online. Members enjoy discounts on pints, food, and merchandise, and 10 to 30% off online orders. Visit homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental to check out the AHA member deals in your area and join the AHA. That's homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental to join the American Homebrewers Association and access thousands of members-only discounts.